0: Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 105 Queer Things Are Happening. This morning I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Michael Brown on the topic of his book A Queer Thing Happened to America. Now, Because I had released an episode just a couple of days ago, part 2 of the uh, Philip Payne interview, my plan was to publish this sometime next week, but then it occurred to me that the subject matter of this this interview has some relevance to the uh, upcoming election. And then it occurred to me, well, I've already received my ballots for that, and probably most of you have as well. And and it, it dawned on me that maybe it would be good for those of you who haven't yet filled those ballots out to, to hear this interview in case it might have a chance of uh, of impacting your vote in a good way. Uh And rather than risk several days going by during which you might fill those out and send it in before hearing the interview, I decided I would go ahead and uh, publish this this today, even though it's a couple of days, only a couple of days after the most recent episode. Hopefully that doesn't bother you. Hopefully you enjoyed the interview. Uh, I really did. I gotta say he's, he was an excellent interviewee. I really enjoyed it. Uh, just uh, for, forgive a little bit of technical difficulties that we had toward the end. Hopefully it won't uh, interfere too much with your enjoyment of the of the uh, interview. That's all I've got really got for right now, so let's go ahead and play the next promo in my feed, which is for my friend Dee Warren's The Preterist Podcast.
1: Hi, this is D.D. Warren of The Preterist Podcast, where I discuss biblical prophecy without the hype and sensationalism found in many evangelical circles. So if you would like to learn a different, yet completely orthodox way to view things such as the Great Tribulation and the so-called Rapture, please have a listen. The podcast can be found on iTunes and many other podcasting directories, or can be found directly at PreteristPodcast.com.
0: If you're somebody who's interested in the topic of the end times, the study known as, known as eschatology, uh, I would definitely recommend that you check out Didi's Dee podcast at preteristpodcast.com. She's also got a blog at preteristblog.com, and I've contributed uh, episodes to the podcast uh, as well as uh, posts to the blog. In fact, uh, it was <clears throat> my first contribution to the Preterist podcast that got me to start this podcast of my own, uh, which means that if you don't like the podcast, you, my podcast, and you've got Dee Dee Warren to blame. <laughs> uh, she's also got an incredible site at PreteristSite.com where you can find all sorts of resources to help you counter futurism and hyper-preterism <clears throat> and just to uh, understand more about the Preterist understanding of uh, books like Revelation and uh, sermons like and the, Olivet on, uh, the Olivet Discourse. So do check out those resources and with that we'll go ahead and move right into today's interview with Dr. Michael Brown.
1: Oh no! Say it cannot be
0: I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. Michael Brown, host of the daily nationally syndicated talk radio show, The Line of Fire. He's the author of a number of books, including Our Hands Are Stained with Blood, The Tragic Story of the Church and the Jewish People, as well as Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus and, most recently, The Real Kosher Jesus. Dr. Brown appeared on my show a while ago to debate the future of Israel with Steve Gregg, but he joins me today to discuss his 2011 book, A Queer Thing Happened to America. Thanks so much for being here today, Dr. Brown. Glad to be with you, Chris. For those listeners who may not be familiar with you and, for, and with your ministry, can you tell us a little bit about your radio show The Line of Fire, what it's all about, what my listeners could expect to hear? Sure,
1: it's it's summarized as a voice of moral, cultural and spiritual revolution, and we cover a wide range of subjects ranging from apologetics and doctrine to awakening in the Church of America to confronting social issues with the gospel to God's purposes for Israel and the Jewish people and in general Q&A so we provide a voice of moral sanity and spiritual clarity in the midst of a society and chaos in a church that's all too often in compromise and normally each day through the week we will hit on different subjects so that people can generally know what to expect which gives us the ability to to have a, a varied approach on the show as well as to be relevant to what's happening day by day in society
0: yeah, well, I, I hope my listeners will check it out. But, of course, your ministry isn't limited to the line of fire, uh, as anybody could tell from just a quick glance at your website. W- what other projects, websites, and ministries are you involved in? Well, I've
1: led a ministry school since 1997. I teach there regularly, Fire School of Ministry, and we have grads from our school that are serving as missionaries in more than 20 nations around the world, so our heart always beats for the Great Commission. I've personally ministered overseas, more than 130 different trips. So I've been around the world and preached in those settings. I'm always engaged in Jewish ministry and outreach, so I have debated rabbis, and then on a regular basis written books on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. I preached throughout America to stir the church for revival and awakening, and then on a regular basis involved in frontline social issues. So I wrote I write regularly for a townhall.com, a conservative political website addressing moral issues from a kingdom perspective. And then we have our, our various websites addressing these things, Coalition of Conscience, which addresses moral issues, Real Messiah, which focuses on Jewish issues, our Voice of Revolution online magazine. So it's, it's quite a range of things that, by God's grace, we're involved in. And if someone goes to my website, AskDrBrown.org, they can then find out all of the other things we're involved with.
0: Okay. you know, A question just occurred to me, uh, so I apologize for putting you on the spot, but you're, you're friends with uh, somebody I'm a huge fan of, Dr. James White. Could you? Uh, how, how did you guys meet and get involved with one another?
1: Well, we met back in 1995 when he was moderating a debate that I did with an Orthodox Jewish rabbi and counter-missionary named Emmanuel Shochet. This took place in uh, the Phoenix area, March of 1995, and he was introduced to me as a six-point Calvinist <laughs> by a friend. So I started chiding him on Calvinism because I'd been a Calvinist from 77 to 82. So so we started to interact in a friendly way then, but with mutual respect. And then we were, we were not in touch a whole lot. Just a, a bit over the years, we'd write back and forth to each other about various things. And we knew the different work that we were each involved with and where it overlapped. And then when I was on... Uh, live talk radio on a daily basis starting about four years ago, four and a half years ago, I started to get lots of emails from people about Calvinism and where I stood on that, and I said, you know, I should have a radio debate with someone, and I was thinking about Dr. White, but I hadn't contacted him, and then he heard about it, so he contacted me, so we did some debates on my show and then on his show. Uh, debating these issues which i think are, are great learning tools for folks wanting to hear both sides of the issue yeah and then the the neatest thing was last year i was asked to come on jewish voice broadcast hosted by my friend john Burnus, and debate these two gentlemen who denied the deity of jesus in fact just thought that he was a glorified man that the son of god was not even pre-existent and I needed a colleague to come on and join me, so it would be two-on-two for this debate. And I thought, wait a second, this isn't Phoenix. This is where where James lives. Why doesn't he join me? So uh, we did that together. In fact, it was a really wonderful night for the gospel. And then I've been on his show a number of times, and he back on mine, so we can both share in our areas of expertise.
0: Yeah, I'm a huge fan of his. He's been on my show twice, in fact. Uh, Now, somebody else has been on the show that's kind of is involved in this discussion. You'll you'll recall that, as I mentioned, when I introduced you, you appeared on my show a while back to debate uh, Steve Gregg. Have you received any feedback from that debate? And if you have, what sorts of feedback has it been? Yeah, I have
1: uh, not a, a ton of feedback, but I have received some feedback from folks who were glad that I did the interview and all the folks I heard from really believe that that we presented the truth more biblically, with all respect to Steve, sure. and that uh, the position to take away the promises from national Israel just doesn't hold water.
0: Yeah, yeah I agree. Well, we're obviously not talking about Israel today, uh, even though you and I share a passion for Israel and for the Jewish people. Instead, you're here to talk about an issue about which I think we're still pretty passionate, and that's the topic of your book, A Queer Thing Happened to America. We're going to get into a few specifics in just a moment, but could you sort of summarize in a nutshell what the book is about and what you hope to accomplish in writing it?
1: I I wrote the book over a six-year period with the goal of awakening the conscience of america not just the church but the society as a whole Mm -hmm. in terms of the real issue of gay activism where it has taken us so far and where we are going and basically to awaken people that want to be tolerant and want to be fair-minded to show them what this really means at the same time, to give greater understanding to the many struggles and issues that homosexual men and women have to deal with, and you can sum up my, my burden with this with the words reach out and resist, reach out to the homosexual community with compassion, resist the gay activist agenda with courage, and this book was written to help resist the gay activist agenda.
0: Great. Now in the preface of the book, you write about some of the complications that you faced when you were trying to find a publisher. Can you tell us about those and sort of what they what, what they indicate about the state of the debate in America today? I knew in
1: writing the book that there would be challenges getting it published because I had already seen that gay activism had quickly become the principal threat to freedom of speech, freedom of conscience and freedom of religion in America. That may sound absurd and strange to some but every day that goes by we see it unfolding more and more yeah. I I knew that in many ways it was considered uh, too hot a topic to touch others looked at it as a no-win situation that whatever side they come out on they're going to get blasted and if they don't come out at all to deal with things they're going to get blasted so I, I worked on the book over a six-year period my ultimate goal was to get it published by a secular publisher But I thought if a Christian publisher had inroads into the secular world, I would work with them. One or two publishers I spoke with, like Zondervan, and we agreed it just wasn't a fit in terms of what they wanted to do and what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, we farmed this out to various publishers, and I actually worked with a literary agent, what I was told the top Christian literary agent in America in terms of working with the biggest Christian authors. And I'd never done that before. They farmed it out. To the top secular publishers, Christian publishers, and ultimately got back to me and said no one was willing to touch it. Wow. They explained that everyone said the title had to change, which in itself said a lot. <laughs> because you have TV shows like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, you have queer Bible commentary, you have queer study programs in colleges. This is not like the N word. In the black community, this is just now mainstream. Yeah. As, uh, almost 10 years ago, Associated Press had an article that queer is now hipster and, and mainstream, cool kind of word. So the fact that people wouldn't touch it because of the title, that that was fascinating and indicative of what I understood was happening. That one side could say whatever it wanted, however it wanted, and if you drew attention to it, you were now outcast. The other thing I was told was that the contents were too controversial. So in other words, for these things to be happening was not too controversial, but to document them was. (laughs) And I had had one conservative publisher tell me that he will be an eager reader of the book when it comes out, but he would not dare publish it, that it could practically bankrupt his firm, that other conservative authors would no longer work with him that bookstores would no longer order from him. That's how extreme this is. So not a single publisher told me that the book was not well written. Not a single publisher told me that it was not well researched. Not a single publisher told me that it wasn't true. Not a single publisher told me that, that it was lacking in compassion. It was simply too hot to touch. And of course, in the gay activist community, this is proof that it's a lousy book and I had to self-publish it, no one would touch it. The reality is it proves the very things that I've said in the book.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, not too long ago, I listened to an episode of your show in which you had played some clips from a debate that you had in which your opponent was convinced or at least expressed that he was convinced that you're an angry, hate-filled bigot trying to rile conservatives up to do literally violent battle with homosexuals and supporters of the gay agenda. On the one hand, how do you really feel about those who struggle with sexual identity and orientation, and how do you, do you, how do you hope your book will impact them? But on the other hand, what sort of action are you really calling the conservative Christian community to?
1: Well, first, in writing the book, I was
0: determined to hear
1: the stories of the people I was writing about. One of my principles in doing apologetics is to really do them well. You, you have to get into the heart, the mind, the skin of the people you differ with, for example, if, if I was going to be focusing a lot on Islam, I would not primarily read books by Christian apologists. I would read books by Islamic teachers and theologians and leaders and try to see the world through their eyes. So of course I did this with regard to homosexual issues. And as, as I listened to their stories, as I had opportunity to sit and talk with people, as I read the books, my heart began to break, especially for those who were raised in a christian home or had a desire to follow jesus and now felt that they must somehow be cast out by god or hated by god and they'd have people trying to drive demons out of them or even shock treatment and just horrific things they passed through and then they said wow this is the way god made me i've been misreading the bible so rather than getting angry with these people my heart began to break all the more i began to see what was happening behind the scenes i began to see some of the roots of rejection So it developed real compassion in me. I remember one night reading a book with stories of of people who had turned away from God because of the church's teaching on homosexuality. And I just had to put the book down and get alone in my room and get on my knees and and cry and and pray. So my heart remains very tender in this issue. And whenever I address these things and get involved, I I do so with a sense of, of internal conflict because of the pain I feel for the people and I know when I stand up for what's right they'll view me a certain way but I know ultimately it's it's in their best interest the best interest of society that we speak according to to God's word and God's heart that being said my ultimate goal my greatest goal is to see hundreds of thousands of homosexual men and women encounter the love of God in such a way that rather than defining themselves by their sexuality they define themselves first and foremost as disciples and followers of Jesus that's my greatest goal. On a societal level, I, I desire for society to wake up and to see that the normalizing of homosexuality has disastrous implications for family, for marriage, for, for religious freedoms down the line. And that while we need to be loving and compassionate towards all people and protect people from hatred, violence, and things like that, at the same time, we cannot give way to the goals of homosexual activism. We cannot redefine marriage. We cannot have these things taught and normalized in our schools. We cannot further open the door to other redefinitions of marriage that this will lead to. We cannot allow the sexual revolution to go further and further in undermining family and society. Yeah. Uh, as as to the charges of this one gay activist, he's, he's known as a loose cannon. His statements are quite extreme. So when he says that I'm trying to incite uh, my my followers, as he would put it, the most unstable <laughs> of my thugs, he would say, to acts of violence against the lesbian community. The more he speaks, the more it disqualifies him from being taken seriously. Uh, the The problem is, you might have somebody who actually believes him, and therefore is afraid that we would we would do harm, whereas in fact we would protect them from harm. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Well, there's one more thing you do in your preface, and that's you explain uh, at least one of the reasons why your book is so long, <laughs> namely uh, that you were trying to provide ample references to sources that support your claims. I remember when I was reading just the first chapter, I remember at one point thinking that not only am I drinking from a fire hose, but I'm drinking from a relentless one that just keeps spraying and spraying and spraying. I, I, I seem to recall at times you would write something along the lines of, uh, you know, these quotations are sufficient to demonstrate what I'm saying, but and I could provide many more. Okay, here are some more, you know. So, so why do you think it was so important to provide such an immense, you know, volume, Barrage of citations, even at risk of intimidating readers by the length of your book.
1: Well, I did not intend to write a 700-page book, and the only way that we got it slightly under 700 pages is by reducing the font of the endnotes. <laughs> so, so, those reading it not in ebook form but in hardcover form would realize that those 1,500 endnotes are in a very, a very small font to keep things under 700 pages but i did feel it was critically important to document every word every statement that could be considered controversial and i could have provided 10,000 pages of quotes in other words the literature is so immense the controversy is so ongoing i i could write a, a chapter a month updating things or, or a chapter every other month updating the book and and make it thousands of pages so on the one hand I wanted to document things clearly because there's so much controversy and there's so much emotion involved in this subject that that you get attacked the moment you open your mouth and I felt it was important to put out kind of the definitive textbook that someone could go to on any of the major subjects, be it what's happening in the media, be it what's happening in the university, be it what's happening in the psychological profession, being what's happening with biblical interpretation, with religious rights, that each chapter would be a statement, a read-alone statement in itself, almost a mini monograph, you could say, well-documented. I, I knew that every line would be challenged, and it was critically important I did that. The other thing is, I really wanted it to be fair. Hmm. And you'll see that I extensively quote from those I differ with and do my best to present their position and their words accurately, And fairly.
0: Yeah, I think you did exactly that. Now, we could talk for hours (laughs) and hours and hours about some of the things that you write about in the book, but in the interest of time and and, and, and in the hope that it will tease listeners uh, into wanting to get a copy of your book for themselves, I want to just ask you to summarize a few of the chapters, beginning with chapter one entitled A Stealth Agenda. What do GLBT activists typically say about the agenda we think they have? And in contrast, what does the evidence reveal?
1: Well, they would laugh at you and say there, there is no gay agenda. <laughs> the, uh, have you talked to the head homosexual to get it? You know, or <laughs> we, we haven't seen a copy of it. it. The very idea of a gay agenda is something that's constantly held up to ridicule to this day. Even though more and more gay activists have said, "Yeah, this is our agenda. This is where we're going. These are our goals," the the very idea is ridiculed. Now, here's the reality. The vast majority of homosexual men and women do not have an agenda. If someone said to you, well, what's the heterosexual agenda? That would kind of be their counter question to reveal the, that the idea of a gay agenda is false. Your average homosexual man and woman has this agenda. I'd like to live my life and not be bothered and right. just be accepted for who I am. However, there are well-funded, well-organized gay activist organizations that are having massive influence in our country. Uh, President Obama has spoken at some of their events, for example, the annual fundraising event for the Human Rights Campaign in DC, the world's largest gay activist organization with a budget of about $45 million, active in lobbying and and every other way of trying to influence the society. Uh, President Obama has been a keynote speaker for them. That's how influential they've been. And if you think of this, You have numerous organizations, legal organizations, lobbying organizations, educational organizations, media watchdog organizations, one after another after another, and then one's operating in different states, fighting to redefine marriage and things like that. Mm -hmm. When you think of their budgets and then look, say, at, at family ministries, let's say we looked at Focus on the Family, which perhaps in its heyday of income under Dr. Dobson was bringing in maybe $130 million a year. I worked with them for a short period of time and asked specifically about their budget just dealing with homosexual related issues and they said it was less than 3% and at that, the great majority of that budget was working to help people with unwanted same-sex attractions. So, So the budget would have been under $5 million. And this was from the largest of all of the family ministries. So there's a massive amount of money being spent, and there are clearly articulated goals which constitute an agenda. And one of the communication devices that they laid out is don't talk about a gay agenda. <laughs> Talk about a gay rights movement because if you talk about a gay agenda it could look bad or sound bad more importantly if you laid out all the goals years in advance Americans would say we don't believe in this we, we are accepting this right. but the stealth agenda is to say there is no agenda to have systematic communication that denies there's an agenda at the same time that you advance your agenda so there's absolutely no question that it exists and the first chapter lays it out indisputably.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a very good word to use. Uh, chapter 2 uh, is called Jewish Hitlers, Christian Jihadists, and the Magical Effects of Pushing the Hate Button. I, I remember a few years back, I attended, if if what I recall correctly, was a Love One Out conference at a, at a stadium here in Seattle. And a local newspaper, I, sh- I should say a newspaper of sorts, it's more like a little free magazine, it had a, a, a biplane fly over us flying a banner which said something like, Get out of our city, you bigots. Uh, and that had a psychological impact on me a little bit tell us about the psychological psychological manipulation that you write about in this chapter
1: well it's it's a well-known strategy it was articulated in writing in the 80s and i'm sure existed before that that anyone that takes issue with the goals of gay activism must be classified as not just a bigot but associated with kkk associated with Hitler, uh, the moment you differ, you're going to be called the Nazi. And it's like clockwork. When we said in 2007 that we were renting the Blumenthal Performing Arts Center in Charlotte, which is one of the most well-known places in the city, and we said we're going to rent out the Blumenthal and we're going to do five nights of lectures on homosexuality, the church, and society, laid out what we were going to talk about and then said clearly this will not be a time of gay bashing. There will be an open mic for Q&A for anyone that wants to interact. No hate speech will be permitted. No sooner did that ad appear in the Charlotte Observer in 2007 that letters to the editor start coming in bashing me, websites start bashing me. looks like the KKK is expanding in Charlotte, (laughs) uh, references to Nazis, Hitler, just like clockwork. To to the extent that the Charlotte Observer actually wrote, and, and they're they're left leaning, well known, so they they wrote an editorial defending me being there because the the place received some public funding, and they allowed me to write an editorial responding. And in the editorial, I said, "Look, this is you're being manipulated because the moment someone uses hate speech, pushes the hate button, and I documented shockingly in the chapter." The moment they push that button, all rational interaction and discourse comes to an end, yeah. and, and you, you vilify your opponent. And I say, look, how about if neither side pushes the hate button and we sit down and talk through the issues?
0: Yeah, that, that would be the approach I prefer, too. Uh, now, we conservatives often speak about the logical slippery slope that leads from one line of reasoning to another and about how if the rationale behind one position is to be clearly rejected, we can't use that same rationale to support another. Now, these are, these are some of the things that you write about in Chapter 7, which you call, Speaking of the Unspeakable, Some Disturbing Parallels to Pro-Gay Arguments. Now, I'm sure that you're going to want to give the disclaimer that you did at the beginning of the chapter, but after that, tell us about these parallels and why they're so disturbing. Yes,
1: it it was a very difficult chapter to write because I I explain how the arguments used by pedophile activists, these are people who claim that man-boy love, so-called consensual, is is healthy. That the arguments used by pedophiles parallel the arguments used by gay activists, point for point. Now, I, I do say... In all caps, I'm not saying that homosexuals are pedophiles. Yes, you have homosexual pedophiles, you have heterosexual pedophiles, that's true. But I was not saying all homosexuals are pedophiles, or most are, or the majority are. In fact, every homosexual man I've ever talked to, when these issues have come up, is as repulsed by the subject of pedophilia as I am. Mm. That being said... I expose the arguments used and show how these arguments actually prove nothing. For, for example, the, the idea that this is widespread in society, of homosexuality throughout culture and society. Well, the same can be said about pedophilia. Uh, when you go back into the ancient Greek world and, and want to look there for a model of homosexual practice, you commonly had pedophilia with with a man having a boy lover, and that was supposedly someone he was going to mentor. And people would just pass through this as kind of a rite of, of passage in life. Uh, well, you know, in the animal world, animals do it. Well, animals do this. Well, it's, it's just beneficial love. It doesn't hurt anybody. And, and you'll have people who say were introduced to homosexual relations when they were 11 years old, and they'll say it's the best thing that ever happened to them. This 30-year-old man took an interest in them, the first person that ever cared for them, and, and it's been liberating for them, and they recommend it now that they're in their 30s or 40s. I, I lay out the arguments and basically say, if you want to use these, then these are the same arguments that, that are used by, by pedophiles. Right. If you're going to try to argue for your position, you're opening the door for them, so it, it's really shocking, and to date, not a single legitimate response has been written to that chapter. I've been mocked for writing it. I've been misrepresented for writing it, but not a single legitimate response. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well I don't think there it, I don't think there is a conceivable <laughs> legitimate response. Uh now one of the most disturbing perhaps, and terrifying victories of the gay agenda has been the legal consequences that often follow expressing, uh, express, expressing one's own disapproval of homosexuality and related issues. Give us some examples of how our rights are trampled upon as you write about in Chapter 14, which you call, Big Brother is Watching and He Really is Gay.
1: Yeah, This is very disturbing. This is not some paranoid projection from some right-wing fundamentalist. <laughs> this is reality. I was first clued in on this by uh, Alan Sears and Craig Austin, who lead up what used to be called the Alliance Defense Fund, but is now the Alliance Defending Freedom. And they wrote a book on homosexual activism called The Homosexual Agenda, which they said was the principal threat to religious freedoms. This came out some years ago now. And they were giving case after case after case to back this up, but it's so widespread now. Again, without getting into all the details, you're talking about people being fired from their jobs, university administrative jobs, because in their private time, they, they wrote a letter to the editor of their newspaper expressing a difference with homosexual activism. Yeah. You're talking about students being kicked out of college programs or university programs because they wouldn't bow down. To gay activism within the school, you're you're talking about people being fired from their jobs simply because they they told an employer that the, the lesbian employer and or lesbian boss rather, and she says yeah she's going on a honeymoon with her partner and so on and and keeps talking to this person. The person says you know as a Christian I don't agree with that. Fired from the job. It goes on and on. Yeah. Most recently in England, I just documented a couple of cases in one of my recent articles. There is a bed and breakfast owner, a couple in their family home, devout Christian couple in their family home. They, they rent out rooms. In the past, they have refused rooms to unmarried heterosexual couples. A uh, homosexual couple wants to rent a room. They explain, no, as Christians, we, we can't do that. They're taken to court and fined almost $6,000 for hurting the feelings of the gay couple. Yeah. There is a man in England, Christian worker, posted on his Facebook page. He differed with same-sex marriage being imposed on the churches. If the government wants to grant that right, that's fine, but it shouldn't be imposed on the churches. He is government employed. He was just reprimanded and had his salary reduced 40%. (sighs) Things have gotten to the point now where a major media leader actually said to me that he appreciates what I'm doing on the radio and encourages me to keep doing it as long as I can, meaning that he thinks the door to this type of free speech might actually be closing.
0: Yeah, that that is really kind of kind of scary. And you know what what, what amazes me is it's not just uh, outright support for homosexuality that can get you in trouble. Just recently, uh, Doctor White has talked about this on his show. There was the lady who just for just for signing a petition let, wanting to let voters decide on the issue um, was reprimanded at, at the college that she taught at or something like that. So now just saying that you want the conversation to be able to be had is enough to give you these kinds of quant- consequences. You know what I mean? Uh, All right. Well, as I said, we could talk for hours. Hopefully, that sampling of the topics that you address in your book will prompt my listeners to buy it. Now, what sorts of negative responses have you gotten to your uh, book? Do you get a lot of very calm, collected responses critical of it, or do you get mostly sort of empty rants, you know, uh, or or do they sort of span those two extremes? And, And how do you respond overall to your critics?
1: Well, I expect that critics will be upset. I expect that they will look at this as an assault on their very personhood. I expect that many of them won't actually read the book but will just repeat what others say so my heart goes out to them I feel the same as always Jesus had mercy on me when I didn't understand when I was hostile I want to have the same response to them at times I will expose error and I I will confront error for the sake of others even if the person I'm dealing with won't hear I want others to hear but I'll try to do it in a calm way I'll try to overcome anger with patience and overcome error with truth. On the other hand, uh, when, when people just write vulgar, ugly things, which happens pretty much all the time, things that you just you can't repeat, you don't even want to read, you just realize this is an expression of the lostness of this person's life. In other words, if, if I disagree with, say, a Muslim, and I start renouncing that person in the most vulgar terms imaginable and then wish for the most horrific things to be done to them, that says more about me than it says about Islam. So when I see people uh, reacting in certain ways to me, that just reveals who they are and their need for the Lord. At the same time, I've received overwhelmingly positive feedback. Overwhelmingly. From reader after reader, from leaders, from professors, from activists who said that this is the book, that this is the most important book that's been written on the subject. Uh, we've been able to get it into the hands of many influential people and are trusting that the, the Lord will use it to make a larger impact. Uh, so, on that level, the years of effort that went into it, the challenges that we had in getting it out, even having to form our own publishing house called Equal Time Books to publish the book. I I feel it's absolutely all worth it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, we talked about Big Brother a moment ago. My, my wife and I just received our ballots in the mail the other day. Uh, it's election time, and the nation is divided. Even Christians are divided when it comes to whom to vote for. How, how should issues like gay activism, the homosexual agenda, the redefinition of marriage, and all the things we've been talking about—how should those things factor into our decision? And do you—and do you think, if you don't mind me asking—that one of the two major parties' candidates is probably the better choice with those things in mind?
1: Oh, absolutely. These things are critically important. When you redefine marriage, you tamper with the very foundations of human society. When when you redefine marriage, you have situations arise. Oh, say like in France, where birth certificates say progenitor A and progenitor B. Uh, the uh, this has happened in Spain, I should say. In France, they're now talking about removing. Uh, mother, father, from birth certificates in Brighton, England. They don't want to use Mr. or Mrs. because they feel that's an insult to transgenders. Uh, we, we've seen things happen in America already now where the door is now opening to polygamy, to polyamory, even to incest being discussed, consensual adult incest. In, in other words, once you mess with marriage, everything gets messed with and then you guarantee that kids raised in same-sex households will either never have a mother or never have a father. And then it goes further when when the law codifies this in a state. Now, Now you are codified as a bigot if you differ with it. So it's critically important that we stand against the redefinition of marriage and gay activism while continuing to compassionately reach out to the people. Therefore, under no circumstances Do I see a a Christian voting for Barack Obama? I see no possible justification for it. Now the Republican Party platform is strong on these issues of marriage and family and Mitt Romney is campaigning in a strong way on the issues of marriage and family and I hope that if elected he'll govern this way. I have concerns, though, because his track record in the past in Massachusetts was not so positive in this regard, and some would say it was very poor in this regard. So the Republican Party platform is overwhelmingly better, and the current stance of Romney Ryan is infinitely better than the current stance of Obama Biden. The question is if elected, will Mr. Romney live out these values? Let's hope that if he does, that'll be the case.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, if if you could leave my listeners and me with a parting message, something that you might want us to take away from our discussion today, more than anything else we've talked about, what would that be? We must take a stand.
1: This will be looked at in years to come, if the Lord tarries, generations to come will look back to this and ask, what did we do in this situation? I've never said The ultimate test of a moral society is the kind of world that it leaves to its children. The question is, what kind of world are we leaving to our children? And when you have things like SB48 passed in California that makes mandatory the the celebration of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender history for all students in all grades, K-12, through with no opt-out options either for students or teachers, when you have SB1172 passed in California, that now makes it illegal to provide counseling to someone 17 years old, so a minor with parental consent, with unwanted same-sex attraction, who wants help for the possibility of change, that is now illegal in California. When you have these things happening on our watch, it's an indictment on our apathy, on our inactivity. So I believe it's essential people get hold of a queer thing happened to America, read the contents, focus on the chapters of interest, and, and then say, okay you to make a difference, ask God for a heart of compassion for the homosexual community and a real vision to see Jesus come into their lives in a profound and wonderful, life-changing way, and at the same time, the courage, the backbone to stand up for what is right, to speak the truth in love, and to turn back the tide of homosexual activism.
0: Yeah, Very good. Well, where can listeners tune their radios uh, to listen to the Line of Fire, and where can they go to find you online?
1: Yeah, the Line of Fire is syndicated nationally, but it's not in every city in America. So the best thing to do is to go to Ask Dr. Brown, ASKDRBrown.org, and click on the Line of Fire on the homepage. And then they can go from there to the station listing and see when it's on in their particular city. And the podcast
0: subscription is free. Okay. And, and how do you recommend listeners get their hands on a copy of A Queer Thing Happened to America?
1: Yeah, I, I doubt that your local bookstore is carrying a copy of A Queer Thing Happened to America, but it's still worth going in and asking for it. Otherwise, you can go to our website and order it there. You can get the ebook book for Kindle or the the ebook for Nook at Barnes and Noble if you prefer that and I'd encourage you once you get the book to post a review on Amazon.com uh, because those reviews continue to be read and they continue to make a difference.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for joining me.
1: A joy to be with you, Chris. God bless you.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed the interview, and I hope it stirs you to action, including the action of voting. <laughs> uh, stay tuned for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast for the close, uh, the conclusion of the Jehovah's Witness debate. Until then.